Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. It's another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, and on this one, we're going back yet again. This interview comes from early 2010, I believe, with Henry Butler, one of the great legends of New Orleans piano, jazz, uh, New Orleans blues, that kind of thing. He was called by Dr. John the Pride of New Orleans, an incredible player. I like this style of music very much. Pretty diverse sounds, but it's still distinctly a New Orleans sound. Fats Domino, Dr. John, James Booker, Professor Longhair, Jelly Roll Morton. I really like that stuff. If you haven't heard the recordings of Henry Butler, I strongly recommend you check him out. A little bit about why I've been pulling out all of these old interviews. The reactions from people have been that some of these older interviews are actually better than my newer ones. I'm thrilled to have people listening, no matter what era of my show. But I'm going through the very tedious, and it's in some ways exciting, and in a lot of ways it's tedious and frustrating, going through my entire collection of interviews, which goes back 14 plus years, and I'm getting them all online. It takes a lot of time. This one, I'm just presenting raw and uncut. It's not edited. It's just exactly what transpired. Thank you, by the way, to Joe Duke for encouraging me and getting the archives out there. I'm not going to go on any longer and just get right to the interview with Henry Butler. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure we welcome our very, very special guest, called by Dr. John, the pride of New Orleans, Mr. Henry Butler. Thanks so much for joining us today. Ah, it's my pleasure, man. So tell us, Henry Butler, where were you born, and what was life like growing up? Well, I was born in New Orleans, and uh, I was born in the... uh, Central City area, which was sort of like the hood, and uh, you know, real ghetto uh, area. Uh, there were lots of musicians and lots of people practicing. And as I was growing up, I used to, when I was a little boy, I'd pass by. Uh, Bars and hear people practicing in them, and and uh, pass by houses and hear music, live music coming from them. Uh, it was just it was a very different time. Uh, people really loved the music down there. I really didn't know at that when I was a kid. I didn't know really the difference between. You know, jazz and, you know, rhythm and blues. And, I mean, I knew that, you know, there was more singing in one style than the other, but we didn't really dwell on the various labels. And then, of course, when I was a little older and uh, I'd left New Orleans to go to school, I realized that 
New Orleans was really a lot more special than I could have ever known. And the fact that uh, people down there just saw all of it as music, you know, and not only that, but the musicians in the city uh, developed in a way that they could play in all the styles because they didn't really care about the labels. They didn't, and and in those days, uh, in those days of antiquity, um, we had we had radio stations that sort of encouraged that kind of thing. You know, they would play. They might play a jazz tune and then follow it with. Um, they might play a jazz tune, say by the AFO. Uh, the uh, uh, which was one of the groups down there uh, with Ellis and uh, Ellis Marcellus, Harold Batiste, Tammy Lynn was part of that uh, at Blackwell, and um, and then they would follow it maybe with something like uh, a Barbara George, you know, like I know. Uh, which was considered a rhythm and blues uh, piece, and they might even follow it with a god. Follow that with something religious, you know. It's just that's just the way it was. So uh, by the time I was, you know, eighteen, nineteen, going off to college, uh, still in Louisiana at the time, uh, it it really didn't matter what we played. It was all part of the whole musical scene. It was just part of the heritage. When I went to Michigan State, um, I realized <laughs> it was a different ball game. Uh, and, you know, people either played rock and roll or they played jazz or they played uh, other other styles like bluegrass and you know that kind of thing. So uh, I got a quick crash course in you know the various labels, musical labels, and uh, but I never stopped performing in all the styles that I learned when I was a, a kid. And could you tell us about some of your influences? I mean, as far as piano and as far as composing. Well, everybody that I listened to and everybody that uh, had records out uh, when I was a kid, uh, I got something from, including people like Fats Domino, uh, Willie T., uh, William Turpenton, um, um, Ellis Marsalis, uh, James Booker, uh Ray Charles, you know, Ray Charles spent a couple of years down in New Orleans uh, uh, really being influenced by uh, a lot of the pianists in the area, including uh, people like Escarita uh, and James Booker and Larry Williams. Uh, you know, they all used to hang out at the Dew Drop Inn in the in the early 50s of course i didn't do that because i was way too young to, to be able to do that um but uh 
Yeah, anybody that I listened to uh, uh, influenced what I was doing. And I, I, maybe I'm crazy, but I think I remember you saying this one time. Didn't you get a lesson in piano playing from Professor Longhair? I certainly did. Uh, that came later. That was after I'd come back from Michigan State, uh, and that was in the mid-'70s. Um, and got a, a marathon lesson from him. And, you know, this guy, he he was full of information uh, about a lot of what he had heard. And, um, you know, he'd say something to me like, uh, okay, play a boogie-woogie piece for me. And I'd play what I thought was a boogie-woogie piece. And he say, okay, that was all right, uh, but I'd play it like this. And then he'd show me, you know, what he would, what he had conceived of as boogie-woogie. And, um, and he was one of those guys who told me that I played the piano too hard. He said, man, you play too hard. Uh, you could play a lot faster if you just lighten up a little bit. And I, I worked on that for years. And what was your impression of Professor Longhair? Well, I found him to be very precise, very succinct, uh, even better than most college professors. He knew he didn't have sophisticated jargon or sophisticated language, but he knew that what he had to say to you was definitely going to influence uh, what you did. And it was direct. It, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he was just really honest about what he heard. And he was not only able to demonstrate what he wanted me to do at the time, um, and which, you know, that in and of itself it's better than a lot of college professors. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, it's great to get a chance to talk to you because I've interviewed a lot of piano players. And a lot of times when I ask, what is your favorite piano player or which piano player has influenced you the most? The name Henry Butler has come up quite a bit. So now I get to ask you, who is your favorite piano player? Uh, well, I've listened to a lot of pianists uh, over the years, including Professor Longhair and James Booker and Escarita and Alan Toussaint, uh, Larry Williams, Otis Spann, Jimmy Yancey, uh, Fats Waller, uh, James P. Johnson, um, coming back into more recent times, Oscar Peterson, um, um, Hampton Hawes, uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, McCoy Tyner. McCoy was my favorite for a long time. And all these guys that I've named, I've gotten quite a bit from. Uh, I would say that I, I don't, uh, and I didn't mention uh, Chick Corea, um, 
Uh, I did mention Keith Jarrett. I guess. Well, maybe I didn't. Um, uh, uh, but you know, as I think about all these guys, I, I I can't say that I really have a favorite at this point in my life. I I I like all of well, I like all those guys for different reasons. I mean, they all bring something different to the table, and that is what I appreciate about uh, the individuality uh, that comes with being a great musician or at least being a great musical personality. Recently, uh, I got to hear uh, Kenny Barron at a club in New York who's, you know, obviously he's not a R&B musician, but uh, he played things that I heard that I can occasionally use in rhythm and blues or anything else. Um, and uh, since I'm in New York, I get, I'm getting to hear a lot of uh, pianists, There's tons of pianists up here. They're mostly jazz, but um, they all can give me something that I can use in any style. Very good. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about something. You did an album with a guy who was a guest on our program named Corey Harris. Yes. And uh, you guys did an album together, and he told us a little bit about it, so I was hoping you could give us a little bit of your perception on the making of that record. Well, let me just, <laughs> the, uh, Corey is a wonderful guy, you know, and, and uh, we met back in 97 when he was living in New Orleans, and he was playing on the streets a little bit, and he he had been teaching in Marksville or around Marksville, Louisiana. Uh, he was very he's fluent in French, and he's obviously a, um, an intelligent young fellow. Um, he's a, he's a writer, and I think he's going to be coming out with a book pretty soon if it's not already out. Um, he's done a lot of research on uh, the guitar playing of uh, people in Mali and and I think he's sort of doing a comparative study with some of the guitar players uh, in in the U.S. Uh, but <clears throat> you know he's he was one of the few black people that I heard who had gone back to the roots, I mean, of, of some of the early blues players in the 20s uh, and 30s. And I thought, wow, you know, that was, that's just wonderful. Because most black people tend to want to run away from that. And I thought that um, maybe uh, this was a good omen uh, for you know younger black players. Anyway, I befriended him, and we started doing some jamming together at some of the clubs in New Orleans, like the Funky Butt, and you know some of the other places. Um, and I wound up doing a couple of cuts on his Greens from the Garden. And I've done 
Oh boy, I don't remember the names of all the CDs that I played on that that he was he and Scott Billington were producing at Rounder, but uh, we actually collaborated on uh, Voodoo Men's, and it came out in 2000. Um, it was a magical collaboration, in my opinion. Uh, we we had fun writing together, and uh, I found him to be a quick uh, thinker and a quick lyricist. Uh, mostly, I would bring in the music, and and we would basically just wed his lyrics to the music. Uh, uh, and we uh, we went into oh, what's the name? Uh, we went into Dockside and around Lafayette and uh, recorded the CD in 2000 and I think it was early 2000 and it came out uh, April or May or something like that um, and we toured on that thing for what, five, six, seven years. It was a great album, that's for sure. Now, Thank you very much. You're very welcome. But uh, there's another artist I was going to ask you about. You did an opening set for, uh, I'll never forget seeing this, it was uh, December 8th, 2004, at the Mahalia Jackson Theater in New Orleans. You did an opening set, and then at the very end, you did a duet with him. Uh, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans with Jimmy Buffett? Jimmy Buffett, yes. <laughs> He's, that's another guy who, um, gosh, you know, a lot of people become popular doing one thing or another, and people don't know, you know, their fans don't know how deep they are musically. Many of these guys have studied various styles of music, and they may not play it publicly on stage, but they are very aware of uh, those things that they, uh, those styles that they really enjoy. And, you know, I think, I think in, in many cases, they don't want to confuse their fans. Um, but Jimmy is one of those guys who, can play in a lot of styles and uh, I really had fun you know hanging out with him uh, for that show I'm glad you said that because it is does seem like he uh, he kind of is pushed into a corner a little bit and when he came out and you guys did that song together he really really crooned and it just seemed so natural and I, I remember Ralph McDonald saying the same thing he said man that song just fit perfectly why shouldn't he do it yeah, well, you know, again, if you're doing it in private, it's it, you know, just doing something like that publicly uh, would seem natural. I mean, um, George Winston is another guy who's like that. You know, he started out as a new age pianist, and people still know him for just that. But when you get real close to him and you spend some time with him, you realize that. And this guy can play in the James Booker style. He plays guitar. He started recording all these flat key 
players, uh, and he learned how to play in that style. And he plays harmonica, plays not only, um, you know, country-flavored kinds of things, but he plays blues. I mean, you know, so... um, I think one of the ways that you become great and one of the ways that you can be celebrated is that you learn everything that you can learn. And regardless of what you wind up playing, uh, you know, your base, your knowledge base is wider than uh, anybody would ever know. Well, very, very well put. Now, there's a new album that you have out, and I was listening to it last night, uh, the Pianola album. Yeah, Pianola Live. It's a clever title, but uh, tell us about that CD. Well, you know, as the title might, uh, as the title might suggest, uh, it's New Orleans piano, New Orleans, Louisiana piano, and um, we wound up, George George produced it. George Winston produced it, um, and I had lost a lot of my copies of a lot of the recorded performances. But uh, in many cases, I will send George uh, a backup copy of a lot of things. So he had he was it was fortunate that he still had those copies. You know, some of your listeners may know that my house was devastated, and a lot of the tapes and of the music and all that stuff was lost. Um, we listened to a lot of things, and uh, uh, we put into the. CD program, uh, some cuts that were recorded back in the 80s, late 80s. Old Man River was one of those. And Mother-in-Law was another that was recorded in the mid-80s out in Los Angeles. Um, And I did that because I wanted people to hear what we were doing in the 80s uh, alongside some of the jazz stuff that we were recording for MCA. Um, these things that we put on the CD were recorded live, and we try to, we try to record everything that we do. Uh, we try to record all of our live performances, because you never know when we might want to, you know, bring them out and let the public hear some of that stuff. Um, uh, but most of the stuff that appears on this CD was recorded in San Francisco uh, a couple of years ago uh, at a friend's piano store. We got, uh, and at a piano store and at a club out there. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, it's just, it was fun. We got a great instrument to, to play on and record on and and uh, we just did anything we felt like doing I was hoping you could tell the listeners out there a little bit if you don't mind about about what happened with Hurricane Katrina because as you said you you no longer live in New Orleans 
That's right. I I left New Orleans a day before Katrina. Uh, it was a mandatory evacuation. Actually, I was thinking about trying to ride out the storm, but as it got closer, it, it I, I think most of us realized that it was just too big to try to ride out. So I got out, and I'm really fort. I, f- I feel very fortunate that I did because I mean, after going back. When I went back to the house uh, four months after the storm, I realized that I probably wouldn't have made it. Uh, you know, everything. Uh, well, we had what six, six and a half feet of water in the house, and uh, the piano was destroyed. All of my uh, studio and tapes. Um, were destroyed on the first floor and um so you know water uh everything so um i tried to get my insurance to uh take care of at least the homeowners part and we're still suing those guys i'm sure they're hoping that we'll just drop out but uh my being my not being a quitter uh, we're just going to keep it open you know keep the suit open um i you know it 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 was it was a force to change my life a lot um it it made me realize that Maybe I was too attached to possessions and you know that kind of thing. Um, so, and after Katrina, I moved to Colorado um, and stayed up there for I stayed there for oh almost four years, about four years. And uh, within the last few months, I moved to New York. And, uh, you know, still, I still feel like I'm in recovery, you know, from Katrina. And it's one of those situations where I don't know if, uh, well, hopefully I'll fully recover from that. But I'm still discovering things that we lost, you know, and trying to replace some of those things. Hmm. Well, the reason I brought all that up is I wanted to let all the listeners know that by the time that this interview is airing, I'm going to be walking on foot 330 miles from Panama City Beach all the way to New Orleans to raise money for all the Hurricane Katrina uh, victims that after five years, there's still a lot of people down there that still, they're still not on their feet. Yes, and that's very true. The city itself has done very little to help those people uh while at the same time uh many people have been moving into new orleans uh and getting grants from various sources so go figure that Hmm. um you know it's amazing to me how a city can just totally neglect people who were born there and had houses, owned houses, and 
really took care of themselves uh, and they just won't do anything to help them. Although it's 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 not. I I would say I I would say that it's not that they're just not wanting to help them. They're just in many cases just being negligent and incompetent. Mm. And and you know the 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 politicians. What can you say? You know they they're just especially the ones that were in office at the time of Katrina, they were really not just incompetent, but retarded. <laughs> I mean, you know, both on the national, state, and local level. Yeah. And they're still trying to get rid of that mayor down there. Yeah. Well, uh, just to kind of go to a, a lighter-hearted topic, <laughs> you're a Louisiana man, so tell us, what is your all-time favorite meal? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. I mean, I I love the simple stuff. I love the red beans and rice and the gumbos and the etouffees. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I just... And uh, a, a, a good helping of barbecue every now and then, you know. Um, I like spicy stuff. Although I'm not getting a lot of that in New York, but I, I do like that. Um, and I, I find myself after, what, four or five years, almost five years being away from New Orleans as a resident, I find that I'm eating in a lot of ethnic places uh, so that I can sort of uh, entertain my palate the way I, I want to entertain it, you know. <laughs> M most of the ethnic uh, restaurants, you know, like the Vietnamese and the Thai and, the, uh, and some Chinese places, uh, Indian places, you know, they have lots of spicy foods and they don't necessarily, especially in the better places, they don't compromise their their diets to suit Americans. Well, it, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking with Henry Butler. Everyone can visit him on the web at henrybutler.com. And uh, I have a final question for you. Yes. This broadcast goes out all over the world, thanks to technology. So my final question, what would you, Mr. Henry Butler, like to say to all the people who are listening in? Well, for all of you who have bought my records over the last 25 years or so, I thank you very much. I thank you for your support. Thank you for allowing me the chance to go in and record new material for you and for me and you know, for everybody who supports that kind of crazy behavior, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll be in your neck of the woods at some point in the next year or two. I definitely hope to see you the next time you're here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so much, Mr. Butler. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure, man.
God bless. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.